Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As those of you who have listened before have heard, I think that during the summer, uh, Hollywood and the movie industry are uh, certainly um, interested in uh, creating for us movies that are enjoyable and which elevate uh, cartoon characters off the pages of the uh, cartoon books um, onto our screens. During the summer, I'm often uh, allowed the freedom and flexibility of time to recall and restudy some of the great uh, heroes and heroines of the Jewish past. And I thought this morning I'd share with you the story of three Jewish women from our history who are not often spoken about. Movies are rarely created about them but who exist in our sacred literature and whose history and memory should be kept alive as uh, exemplars of heroes of a different kind, not comic book heroes with superpowers, but individuals with super faith. I want to speak with you to begin with about one of the most fascinating women in the Bible, Michal the daughter of Saul. She is perhaps one of the most romantic of all the biblical heroines, both because of the strange situation in which she found herself and because of her tragic faith. At the same time, the biblical text shows us a Machal who was almost totally passive, who spoke and acted very little for herself. Our glimpses of her are fragmentary, found in Samuel 1 and Samuel 2, chapters 18 and 19 in Samuel 1 and chapter 3 and 6 of Samuel 2. Our glimpses in these books are fragmentary as though we are peeping at her through cracks in the shutters, through the rents and tears in the fabric of family life into the inner palace and her private life there. The very few words Michal utters are important in providing an understanding of her character. The power of the biblical account lies in a few short, sharp lines, sketches of the people and events in question. On the whole, we are told almost nothing of the thoughts of the heroes in the Torah. There are no complex and complicated dialogues about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses and Joshua. No great character buildup. From this point of view, biblical narrative is in marked contrast to Greek drama. The latter, in almost all its forms, rests solely on monologues in which the heroes explain their experiences and feelings. When the monologue does not suffice, the Greek chorus fills in the gaps in the story and carries the narrative forward. Thus, the author has the opportunity to express his or her own educational, moral, and philosophical ideas in the Torah, the books of the prophets, the books of the writings. We find almost none of these devices 
Yet the narrative is often strikingly clear and provides us with a true-to-life, multi-dimensional figure. Thus we discover Michal in three different situations, each one of which shows us a different aspect. The combination of the three pictures, the three situations, enables us to reconstruct not only the events that characterize each one, but also to understand the personalities involved. Michal is first introduced to us with the words, And Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, 1 Samuel 18.20, hinting at a story of first love. When we next meet her, after David's escape from Saul, she is given to another man, Palti ben Leish, in 1 Samuel 25. And in the third story, we witness a short conversation, a very unpleasant scene between David and Michal in 2 Samuel 6, in which she comments on the way David dances. Taken in isolation, none of these brief passages presents a full picture, but together they give us a general portrait of relationships, a portrait that illuminates and reveals aspects of David's character as much as it does of those of Michal. One point that is perhaps crucial to Michal's personality and for understanding the relationship between her and David is actually linked to the relationship between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Saul and Michal were truly representative of the image and essence of their whole tribe, with all its power and advantages and concomitant weaknesses. The most marked facet of Michal's character is that she was an aristocrat, a princess. She was the daughter of nobility, not only because her father was king, but because her whole family was noble. It was a nobility that had beauty and elegance, along with weakness. Such aristocratic features may often include something anemic, a certain inability to adopt to awkward situations. We often find in them passivity instead of action, silence where there should be speech and thoughtless chatter where there should be silence. In the contrast to these reserved people, some of whom, like Jonathan, were heroic and beautiful in body and soul, someone like David appeared. He was simpler, more earthy, undoubtedly, according to the text, handsome of appearance and a hero of war. Very understandably, an attachment was formed, a first love involving the closeted young girl from an aristocratic family. Michal fell in love with the village hero. His simplicity, or perhaps his crudeness, was not disturbing to her, but doubtless had a certain charm of its own. The same characteristics have had a singular magic for many other young maidens in similar circumstances throughout history, even up until our common era today. Out of this attraction was born a great love. Michal, the daughter of Saul, loved David. A special relationship was created between them, and even Michal, never over-talkative, showed it so that Saul, for all his introversion, sensed what was going on.
From that very first contact, Michal and David were bound by a tie of love that remained constant despite all the problems that the text tells us of. It remained steadfast in the face of the pressures later created by Saul and was an unshaken by the triangle of relations between Saul, David, and Jonathan. Michal did not often act of her own accord in the text. Yet, until her last moments with David, she remained loyal, and even more than loyal to him. In fact, she was even prepared to betray her father for David's sake, as when she tricked Saul by smuggling David out of the house to enable him to escape Saul's ire. The situation is reminiscent not only from the point of view of plot, but of the relationship between Rachel and Lavan, perhaps not surprisingly, since Michal of the tribe of Benjamin was a direct descendant of Rachel. The story of David's escape contains a key word, identical to one in the story of Laban's pursuit of Jacob and the theft of his household images as found in Genesis 31. The two instances are the only references in the Torah to household or family idols. In both cases, they are treated as a means of cheating the father. In both cases, the inner motive is similar bond with the man, with the new hero, is so deep that erases all other ties. This special bond between David and Michal similar to that between Rachel and Yaakov, remains to the end. In the next passage in Samuel, the weakness of the aristocracy is disclosed. While in the first situation we find mutual attraction, the combination and pairing of beauty and heroism of the old nobility and the man of the people, in the second we find Michal's surrender and passivity when given to another man. She was given away, according to the text, to Palti ben Leish, a man who was possibly a friend of the family of the house of Saul. She moved with him across the Jordan, where she remained with him for several years. The Talmud, trying to understand this relation, tells us several things about Palti ben Leish, who was apparently closer to Saul's house than was David and about his attitude to Michal. However, if we look at Michal herself, we are given a glimpse of her essential being by what she did not do. When Palti was forced to renounce Michal, it is said that he went along with her, weeping behind her. Samuel 2, chapter 3. But Michal did not cry. In a way, it seems as if she had lost her active personality in this great crisis. No longer as a human being, but as an object, a chattel. We can imagine Michal's emotional crisis in different ways, but a crisis it surely was. Her heart was broken. She had been handed over to another man whom she did not love, and the oppression is somehow created that she was no longer capable of caring for anyone, not even for David. The parting from him, which she believed to be final, and her being handed over to this other individual broker spirit until she reached a point of total detachment. 
this emotional detachment was partly an expression of her aristocratic nature. The nobility was superior. They did not make scenes or have stormy fights, nor did they destroy social structures. One only needs to think of the episodes of Diane and Charles and the British monarchy to see this resonate in our time. Michal did not rebel. She did not try to escape from the entanglement of some ex- by some extreme measures such as suicide, as did her father Saul at the end of days. She could protest her lot, but instead she broke. And what remained was the outer shell of a personality from which the heart was missing. From this point forward in the text, Michal responded to everything that happened with total passivity the passivity of one who is past caring. The Mahal of the first meeting of David was not the same woman who was returned to him several years later. The heart, the emotion, the excitement had gone out of that woman, and what remained was a shell, an aristocrat, and nothing more. All this is sharply expressed in the final episode of the Michal and David relationship, which reveals a clash between two cultures as well as two totally different individuals. It was a clash between David, so very earthy, passionate, enthusiastic, and Michal, reserved, introverted, introverted, and deeply concerned with propriety. Michal's rebuke to David is the key to her whole personality. She neither saw nor related to the spiritual significance of bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. She knew that it was an important celebration, and what bothered her on this occasion was the fact that David had exposed himself when dancing in front of the maidservants. How could the king do such a thing? The sages of Talmud and Storyland, law and lore, have already pointed out the marvelous sense of modesty in Saul's family, the way in which he went deep, deep into the cave when he wished to cover his feet. That same horror of nakedness, which is characteristic of all Semitic cultures, was marked in Saul in his personal relations as is in his public behavior. We're told that he had a fear of exposing himself. In contrast to this modesty and circumspection, we find David. David did not stop to consider how he was dancing, how he was behaving, how he appeared to others. For Michal, the act of exposure was less important than the humiliation of cheapening himself before the masses descending to their level. She was injured by the fact that David did not treat his throne with respect, that he had no sense of the majesty of kingship, of being divinely chosen to lead. She was the daughter of the nobility contrasted with the man she actually regarded as simple. David, for his part, was no less sharp in his response to Michal, and his sharpness is illuminating as well. He juxtaposed these contrasting elements, comparing his election as king not necessarily with Machal, but with what she represented, the house of Saul, her father. David claimed that the choice of the Almighty had fallen rather on someone like him, a man who expressed real sensitivity, the true emotions of the heart, the excitement, the flexibility to stand firm against difficulties and not break. At the same time, he was the man who could rejoice, who could express his joy and reveal himself. 
sage is saying that the kingship of the house of Saul did not continue because he had no fault, finds an echo in the relations between David and Michal. Outwardly, she was flawless, cold and noble, the ideal woman viewed from afar. David, in contrast, was passionate, fiery in everything he did in his virtues and in his sins. He had his flaws and his failings, and he also had the strength to rise above them. The contrast between Mahal and David recalls not only the confusion of Mahal's life arising partly from her reserve and inhibition, but also between the tragic clash, the entanglement between this aristocratic woman and the simple man with whom she fell in love. Mahal's heart was broken because David could never be wholly hers. He could never fit her notion of the perfect and she could never accept what he was. She could be happy neither with him nor without him. The princess and the shepherd, the first star-crossed lovers in written history. I want to change gears. I want to talk about a prophetess, Deborah. You know, there are several prophetesses portrayed in the Bible. The most incomplete detailed picture is that of Deborah, who was also a judge in Israel. From the outset, this fact sets Deborah apart, since we can safely assume that in those times, and indeed in many generations thereafter, the office holders were men. As the sages have said, it was almost certain that Deborah's role as judge was secondary to her role as prophetess. She became a judge because she was a prophetess and not the contrary. In this sense, she parallels the last of the judges, Samuel, who was fundamentally a prophet and as a result became a leader of the nation in war and in peace. Deborah is outstanding among the biblical prophetesses and differs substantially from the standard figure of the female seer. Deborah, like the other biblical prophetesses Miriam and Huldah, was a married woman in the full sense of the world. This fact teaches us something of the Jewish attitude, not only to the prophetic woman, but to prophecy as a whole. In Judaism, prophecy is not perceived as an experience of the unusual individual, gifted with parapsychological powers or or possessing extraordinary spiritual characteristics that can be developed only at the expense of other manifestations of personality. Rather, in Judaism, and Deborah in particular, the prophet is seen as a perfect whole person, far from being eccentric, Outside the normal mode of understanding, he or she is an individual who has achieved a state of perfection in the overall experience of life. Prophecy is revealed when the prophet speaks God's word. Deborah's role was primarily that of prophetess, but she was also Uh, a judge in times of peace and in times of war. In fact, in the case of other judges, her decisive historical rule emerged against the backdrop of external events, particularly in the time of war and conflict. 
It is interesting to compare Deborah to a heroine of a different age and culture, perhaps Joan of Arc. The difference between the two is immediately striking. Deborah did not see, set out at the head of an army, nor did she feel any need to do so. She found a man suited to the task of military commander and not only gave him control over the armed forces, but tried as much as possible to avoid any personal participation, even, some say, as an observer. It is characteristic of Deborah that she penalized Barak for his request for her support by telling him that he would not strike the decisive blow, would not achieve the final victory, the killing of Sisera, the enemy leader. Indeed, this deed was to fall to the hand of a woman, Yael. The punishment reveals another side of the nature of Deborah, the acceptance of a certain division of roles between men and women. She saw it as man's function to go to war, and she herself refused to go, not because of any tenderness of heart or screamishness. Deborah's song, the second major poem in the Torah, is one of the most bloodthirsty in all the Bible, but because it was simply not her job to do so. Her job was to inspire, to prophesy, to judge. She did not hanker after the fame and glory of command. She saw Barak's attempt to draw her into war as a weakness of his part. And though the end would be victory, it would be a woman who would strike the decisive blow, but not Deborah. The Song of Deborah is one of the great and beautiful poems of the Bible. It reveals in its tones and accents facets of her femininity, as in the emphatic self-appraisal of her personality and role. Although a prophetess, Deborah saw her own position clearly. When we compare her song to another great victory poem, the song of Miriam in Exodus 15, there is one striking difference, despite the poetic similarities. Moses hardly mentions himself in that song, while in the song of Deborah, the prophetess refers to herself several times. Judges 5, until I, Deborah, rose, arose a mother in Israel. It seems that Deborah could not refrain from stressing her own importance in this way. After all, she did not award herself laurels that did not belong to her, but mentioned herself in a totally legitimate and appropriate way. Deborah. What an unusually powerful woman. There is, of course, um, another feminine aspect of the Song of Deborah. There is here no description of the fallen of bodies torn or mangled in war, but it is a psychologically extremely cruel. Throughout the poem, although it is a song of victory, there are almost no details of war. They are swallowed up in a great epic about the supremacy of the God of Israel. The exception to this rule is the passage relating to the mother of Sisera. This is explicitly the reckoning of one woman with another, and may be compared with the reckoning of Samuel with the mother of Agog, an episode no less striking in its simplicity, but quite lacking in ridicule and venom. 
Deborah graphically depicted the expectation of Sisera's mother and her waiting and her watching and preparing for his victorious coming, not yet knowing of his death and downfall. Irony and harsh mockery are often to be found in prophecy, but usually in straightforward and explicit way. Here, we have not the bluntness of an axe, but the fineness of a needle. There is no doubt that this piercing, stinging quality was characteristic of Deborah. The narrative of Deborah's story does not give a clear indication of her tribal affiliation or where she resided and whose tribal territory she was active. It became clear from her song that her description of herself as a mother of Israel, the charismatic leader with great vision, was justified. And perhaps her not having a particular tribal homeland is reflected in her leadership that had an added dimension of political significance, which allowed her to make the claim that she was beyond tribal affiliation. Most of the judges operated within the territory of one or two of the tribes, and the wars they led were primarily defensive attempts to repel threats from outside the borders of the country. Deborah was the exception in that her leadership in war and peace embraced practically all of the tribes of Israel. She tried to form a broad alliance for far-reaching national purpose which was as much political as military, even if not all the tribes cooperated in this alliance, but following old custom, did not see themselves as obligated to enter a war not specifically related to their tribal needs. Deborah's initiative was an immense undertaking, akin to that of the original conquest of the land of Joshua and a sense the continuation of it. Yakin, the king of Chatzor, not a new enemy of Israel, was vanquished, and with him the Canaanite strength in the north was broken. The Canaanites, while not entirely destroyed, therefore disappeared as a political force from that area of the country. Deborah is revealed as a great historical personality. More than a local judge or leader, she saw events on a large scale, not as an opportune coincidence is caused by a known force. She fulfilled a role of great historical scope, and in doing so, not only justified her title as mother of Israel, but also the description of her age as the age of Deborah. She left her mark on an era. Two women, two very different stories, but both impacted greatly on the history of the Jewish people. Michal, of course, became the most significant love in the life of David. And perhaps through her we learn about David's strengths and weaknesses in juxtaposition to Saul and his aristocratic, uh, hierarchical kind of uh, lineage, David the shepherd, who will become the great king of Israel. And Deborah, the normative married woman, mother of children, who will lead the Israelite people into victory and whose song will become uh, an intimate clarion call for Israelite unity. Two women, 
very different, but impacted heroically on the uh, history of the Jewish people, and in many ways on the history of Jewish faith. This is Rabbi Stephen Garten for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts saying, Shalom and have a good day.